Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, March 23. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Katrina Blowers. And Katrina, today's briefing contains a shocking statistic. That's right, Tom. 2%, just 2% of sexual assaults lead to a conviction. We explore one way of changing that. The criminal justice system itself is a barrier to going forward because what women know is that they don't want to subject themselves to the brutal cross-examination that takes place. A new idea for sexual assault and the the courts in just a moment on the briefing, but first to the big news of the day. Well, prepare to evacuate. That is the message to residents around parts of Sydney's northwest and the New South Wales central tablelands. Yeah, flooding's expected to worsen today as rain continues to smash eastern Australia. This will be a very difficult week for hundreds of thousands of Australians, if not more, as we face the immediacy of the floods. And there will be many difficult months ahead as the clean-up and recovery from this national natural disaster gets underway. Yeah, that was the PM, Scott Morrison, confirming yesterday defence personnel will need to be deployed to help. And he promised Commonwealth emergency funds to those most in need. And New South Wales State Emergency Services spokesperson Alana Pember-Rose says today's challenges will also be the high winds. As well as all of that rain and the flash flooding and the riverine flooding, we also have some damaging winds with gusts over 90 k's an hour along the coast this afternoon. Because the ground is so wet, when you get strong wind, it's really easy for the trees to come over. Yeah, that ground is completely saturated. It's just not soaking in any of that excess rainfall. Flood warnings are also in place in eastern Victoria and southeast Queensland is bracing for more wet weather after the Gold Coast and Brisbane received really heavy falls mm. yesterday. Another 150 mil or so expected today. Fears that could trigger life-threatening floods and also landslides, Tom. Yeah, and there's more rain coming on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Um, this is the one-in-100-year flood event in that part of New South South Wales. Um, some parts of the mid-north coast have received almost one metre of rain since Thursday. It's, it's just hard to even fathom, isn't it? Uh, there's severe weather warnings right up and down the coast. Every mainland state now, except for WA, is under those warnings. And that weather system reaching right up into the Northern Territory and also the northern part of South Australia. And a new sex scandal has hit federal parliament. A group of men, said to be coalition government staffers, have been outed in pictures and videos performing sex acts in the offices of female MPs. Yeah, 10 News broke this story yesterday, showing heavily pixelated images of a man performing a lewd act over the desk of a woman. A whistleblower who was part of that group of at least four men leaked the pictures that were reportedly part of a private Facebook group. So the man that filmed himself masturbating in that MP's office has been sacked from his job as a coalition advisor yesterday. The whistleblower also revealed that staff and MPs regularly had sex in the prayer room in Parliament House and said there was a culture of men who think they can do whatever they want. Disgusting, disgraceful, privileged. I don't think they've broken any laws. Morally, they're bankrupt. That wasn't the only story to come out of federal parliament yesterday along this front. Uh, The parliamentary security guard who discovered Brittany Higgins after her alleged rape in Parliament House has spoken to the ABC's Four Corners. It was a very interesting interview. Her name is Nicola Anderson and the security guard said she was shocked to find the then Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins lying naked in the Defence Minister's office. Oh God, and I mean oh God, because I've never come across anything like that. 
Miss Anderson said she wanted to speak out to clear the air because initially the Prime Minister's office said they knew about an incident, but they only knew about a security breach, not about an alleged rape. But Miss Anderson said on Four Corners that it, it wasn't actually a security breach. So that was very interesting. She also said that she hadn't been contacted by anyone investigating the incident, which really stood out to me watching it as well. She went into quite a bit of detail about how she saw both Miss Higgins and the man being intoxicated. They were still allowed into Parliament with their passes and she said she witnessed no security breach at all. Yeah, and there's another question mark over the Prime Minister's handling of this. Uh, He's been accused of misleading Parliament in relation to the Gaitchen's inquiry Um, which is basically his investigation into who knew what when uh, in relation to this alleged rape. So Phil Gaitchens is the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He was given the job of of running that inquiry, but we found out yesterday that that inquiry had actually been paused uh, 13 days ago on March 9, and Phil Gaitchens said he told the Prime Minister that it was paused. Yeah, uh, the PM really got hammered about this in question time. He was asked about the status of that report on Thursday the 18th. He said he hadn't had a further update. Secretary should conduct his inquiries as he sees fit and without any interference or any involvement from me as Prime Minister. That would be highly inappropriate. Now, he has not provided me with a further update about when I might expect that report. So getting right into the detail there, uh, the Prime Minister is saying he hadn't had a further update about when he might expect the report, but nine days earlier he'd been told the investigation had been paused, but he didn't include that in his answer in Parliament yeah. Question Time. He got he got a bit of heat about that. Um, people were yelling out Pinocchio and calling him a liar in Question Time. The PM saying that um, Gaijans is uh, conducting this inquiry at arm's length of him, so, you know, really he, he didn't really know the, the particulars of that. Jared Hayne, the former rugby league star and NFL player, is likely to go to jail after being found guilty of two counts of sexual intercourse without consent. Yeah, there was a hung jury on this trial the first time around and a second jury yesterday found Hayne had in fact sexually assaulted the woman at her home in Newcastle while her mother was home, no less, in 2018. Hayne maintained his innocence um, and as he left court, he said he was disappointed by the verdict. The one-time NFL star was granted bail, $50,000 bail ahead of being sentenced in May. And this comes after he settled a civil case in the US over sexual assault allegations. Hopes of the New Zealand travel bubble opening to Australians have been pushed back till at least next month. We were all so excited about this press conference and yesterday the uh, New Zealand PM said we will have to wait until April 6 to find out when we will be able to travel to New Zealand quarantine free. I love that she's forward promoting the announcement <laughs> of the She's of really the start getting of the mileage out of this, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just don't get it. We've been accepting New Zealanders since October <laughs> apart from a few pauses and we're still not allowed to go there. But we do have more cases here, though. And even though the New Zealand tourism economy is really reliant on our tourism dollar, uh, apparently a lot of people are quite nervous about more cases if they open their doors to us. Yeah, and apparently she's negotiating with individual Australian states, so maybe you'll be able to go skiing in New Zealand from Queensland and I won't. (laughs) And what you hear about it, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) All right, in a moment we're talking about an idea to change our legal system and the way it deals with sexual assault. (laughs) 
Thousands march for women's rights. Demanding action on violence against women. Together we can bring about real, meaningful reform. So that was the wave of anger from the streets last Monday where over 100,000 women around Australia and their supporters took to the streets calling for justice uh, and that's around violence towards women. Katrina, what was it like for you watching that protest go down? Look, I think for me and and all of my female friends and male friends too, it just felt galvanising that we were being seen and heard and bringing these issues out into the public agenda. Things that, Tom, we have been talking about for decades now. You actually wrote a piece nine years ago that went to the the heart of this problem and, and you reposted it again because the same issues are coming up. Yeah, I was uh, assaulted by a group of guys in Hyde Park in Sydney and uh, I managed to get away. But yeah, spoke about the shame that I felt in even telling my husband at the time that that had happened because Mm. I blamed myself. And yeah, knowing that I wasn't alone when I was watching other women tell their stories last week was so powerful. Yeah, so did you feel that, that shared sense of anger that seemed to be so visible on the streets? Definitely, and I, I think that there was anger too in how that was received last week. Such an important issue. Our Prime Minister didn't come out to meet with the protesters outside Parliament House, and uh, the way that he responded in Parliament too really got people fired up. Not far from here, such marches even now are being met with bullets, but not here in this country, Mr Speaker. Not here in this country. This is a triumph of democracy when we see these things take place. So how did that response from the Prime Minister make you feel? I just thought it was so ill thought out <laughs> and it it really diminished the mood of the day. It, and it, for many people who responded to that privately to me, it made them feel like the gravity of what had happened that day. I mean, in Brisbane, where I live, 10,000 women took to the streets and that was the biggest public protest we've ever had in this city. But the Prime Minister's response to that just made people feel diminished and, and mm. not listened to. Thankfully, that wasn't the only conversation happening in Parliament House, just down the halls from um, the dispatch box where Scott Morrison made that comment. Our briefing guest today was actually having a meeting with the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne. She was telling the Minister about a potential solution to our legal system and it's actually coming from New Zealand, Tom, where they've Mm. been trialling this new way of handling sexual assault cases. Yeah, so the handling of sexual assault cases is is going to be the focus of today. We've clearly got a, a problem in that area, Katrina. Here is a shocking stat for you. Only 2%, 2% of sexual assaults lead to a conviction. We're asking why is that? What could be done differently? And will fixing that problem bring about the broader change and hopefully stop the violence before it happens? So the woman we're talking about is Angela Lynch. She's a lawyer. She's the CEO of the Women's Legal Service Queensland. Angela Lynch, welcome to the briefing. So while that was all going on last week outside Parliament, you were inside having a meeting with the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne. I guess we'd love to know how did that go and what were you talking about? 
we came to Canberra, Women's Legal Service Queensland came to Canberra with a positive message in relation to um, making um, issues or elevating issues of sexual violence in Australia. Um, we want it elevated to a national cabinet level. Um, we came with some ideas where they could um, implement immediately in relation to making change around um, sexual violence responses in Australia, basically. But also um, looking more long-term, we wanted a, a national summit to bring um, people together, experts, survivors, etc., together to gather ideas about taking the matter forward, um, you know, probably over the next five to ten years. So, Angela, there's so many levels to this this anger about this problem of, of violence towards women. There was obviously a lot of focus on the Prime Minister calling out a lack of political leadership. So there's that political dimension. There's the broader cultural change needed amongst men to stop this behaviour and, and all the attitudes that go along with it. And as we're about to talk about, there's the legal dimension as well. How important is that legal piece of the puzzle? Well, it's really important because um, you can have all the preventative strategies that you want in um, society. You can have consent, you know, um, education, respectful relationships, all of that. It doesn't really mean much when our major institutions, um, such as our legal institutions, are really giving the green light for this kind of behaviour to continue. Gosh, I mean, the the language you just used then, giving the green light to this kind of behaviour, that's pretty powerful stuff, Angela. I'd love to know what stage of the process do those problems begin? What we know from victimisation rates is that there's about 200,000 sexual assaults a year in Australia. What we know is about 26,000 of those are reported to the police across Australia. And what we know, um, around 4,500 are found guilty. So that's 4,500 out of 200,000. And so that's a um, conviction rate of around 2%. So that's is giving a picture of the failure of our legal system to respond in its best way. You could not say that that is an appropriate figure that we feel that the legal system is responding well to this crime. So roughly, Angela, would I be right in saying that of the people that do go to police, and you said Mm. about 13% go to police, about one in five of those end up with a conviction. Is the problem that not enough people are going to police or that only one in five are are getting a conviction or are they both interrelated? It's all interrelated. So what we know is that um, women are reluctant to go to the police for a range of reasons, including that they fear retribution from the perpetrator. They have a great deal of shame about what's happened and don't want to take it any further. They're embarrassed. But what we also know is that the criminal justice system itself is a barrier to going forward because what women know is that they don't want to subject themselves to the brutal cross-examination that takes place. Who, who actually has to prove what? It comes down to a credibility thing in relation to whether the jury believes uh, one side of the story, the victim um, or the complainant, as they, they're known in, the, in a trial, um, is giving their side of the story because the um, defendant has a right to remain silent. 
they don't have to and rarely, very rarely ever give give evidence. It's actually the prosecution, um, the, the state prosecutors have to establish beyond reasonable doubt that um, her version of events was um, the correct version and that they um, proceed with that. We have to be able to do better in relation to how the criminal justice system responds to these matters so that we can ensure that more women do come forward and we can get some level of um, or greater a level of accountability around these crimes. Okay, so tell us about this proposed solution that they've been trialling in New Zealand. Yeah, there's um, a, a specialist court in New Zealand, um, a sexual violence specialist court. I think they've been trialling it since about 2015 over there. Um, and it's been independently evaluated and it's been quite positive. So what they've done over there is set up a court with specialist judges, specialist prosecutors. There's um, agreed guidelines in relation to cross-examination. So you're trying to control that cross-examination process as I said before, can be very, very brutal. It's case managed, or tightly case managed by the judge because what can happen in these matters as well is that when there's delays in the criminal justice system where when time blows out, that also places additional pressure on victims who just can't take the pressure and and tend to then um, drop out of the matters because they just can't handle the waiting period um, as they're waiting for the trial. The evaluation found that all parties found that the processes were fair, so it was still fair to the defendant, but it also did result in some higher levels of guilty or earlier guilty pleas rather than going through a full trial. Gosh, that's interesting. Why do you think that was? I think that when matters are tightly case managed, there's control over processes and that it is a um, specialist court so they know what they're doing. (laughs) You're not going to get away with too much. There may be that inclination then to take a um, or go for a guilty plea on the basis you then get a sort of a, you know, what's taken into account is that early guilty plea and a reduction in in sentencing. So Angela, it's Easy to get my head around how you could be more compassionate and, uh, I guess, careful in in the way you question and deal with uh, traumatised victims in this sexual assault court. But what sounds a bit trickier is how the burden of proof changes because our legal system is designed to minimise the number of people that are locked up for things that they didn't do. So how does the burden of proof change in this special sexual assault court without undermining that core legal objective? The um, burden of proof would remain the same. It still would be proof beyond reasonable doubt. It's just more of a specialist approach um, and a more trauma-informed approach. And that's why um, in the evaluation that was undertaken by academics of that court, it was found that both sides, both the defendant and the um, prosecution felt, um, and the victim, felt that the, um, it was still a fair process. Where to next? Were any promises made in that meeting with Maurice Payne? No, no promises were given in that meeting at all. We're just hoping now that um, something will come of this. I mean, the, um, you know, women across Australia have marched in solidarity last um, Monday um, and are now seeking action. And we're sort of waiting now for the government to provide us with, um, you know, really, I would be hoping a roadmap forward in relation to how to respond to um, this issue at, um, at a federal level. That was Angela Lynch, the CEO of the Women's Legal Service Queensland. And I think we both had the same response there, Katrina, around 
politicians sort of giving non-answers in this space. Ah, it's so classic, isn't it, at every press conference we've ever been to. But look, as we mentioned in the interview, you know, the mood for change is now. Um, something needs to happen. People have been complaining about a broken system for years. It'll be interesting to see whether um, fixing it in the, the court space will actually lead to more women feeling comfortable with going to police in the first place. Yeah, because that was actually the stat that really jumped out at me was that only around one in 10 actually go to police. So as you say, will the process that happens after that, you know, a fairer, more compassionate treatment in the courts lead more people to come forward? And then in turn from that, and this is where you sort of have to really instill some hope, is that that means less people will actually perpetrate that violence in the first place. Yeah, because they'll see those conviction rates as a deterrent. you got to hope so, right? Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, we're going to speak to people in regional Australia who are being outgunned in their local property markets by city slickers with lots of money. Listener.